everybody and welcome to the true crime squad this is katie weaver i'm here with my sister co-host and partner in crime christy brower hello hello hey everybody how's it going it is going well i have spent my whole day deep in the end of the michelle traconis trial <laughs> oh, yeah. well i love your top that is super cute thank you isn't that i love it too mm -hmm. it reminds dark. me of something i probably wore as a kid the Probably. color scheme and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. but I actually love it. Yeah. Hey, anytime you get a shirt with a giant butterfly on it, you have done the right thing. Yes, definitely. It is what it is. Yeah. How are you? Oh, uh, I am. Oh, I'm good. I am knee deep in the Nori Jones trial and have spent the entire afternoon reading all of the uh, notes, the reporter <laughs> notes from the last five days of trial and my head mm -hmm. is spinning. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm <laughs> you and I are both knee deep in something here. Yeah. But I'm going to kick it over to you to start us. We're going to cover two cases today. We're going to talk yeah. about uh, Michelle Traconis as uh, we're on verdict watch now with her. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about the current trial for the murder of Nori Jones from Pocatello, Idaho. Yes. So I'm going to kick it over to you first and we'll talk about Traconis. Definitely. So Tr Michelle Traconis is charged with a bunch of different counts. And this is all in relation to the disappearance and believed murder of Jennifer Dulos. This happened back in 2019. Uh, it is believed that Jennifer was murdered by her husband at the time, Fotis Dulos, and they were in a pretty ugly divorce and custody battle. Jennifer or, I mean, Michelle Traconis was Fotis's current girlfriend. Fotis mm -hmm. Dulos was arrested for uh, Jennifer's murder and then took his own life in jail. Right. And a few days ago, we read you his suicide note in which he seemed to just assume that if he took himself out of the equation, that there wouldn't be any more looking into the disappearance and believed death of Jennifer Dulos. What an asshole. He left everyone holding the bag in this situation. Jennifer, due to the forensic information that, that we have based on um, what is believed to be the crime scene in her garage, and uh, the, the forensic evidence indicates that this was a murder, that, mm -hmm. that the blood loss and everything that was found that had been cleaned up, but that was then identified, was more blood than anyone could lose and still live. Uh -huh. So uh, Jennifer Dulos has been legally declared dead, but her body has never been located. So it gets pretty complicated. Yeah. So Michelle Traconis is charged with conspiracy to commit murder, two counts of conspiracy to tamper with physical evidence, two counts of tampering with physical evidence, and one count of second degree hindering prosecution. So if you remember, um, the, the investigators found uh, video of Fotis Dulos and 
uh, Michelle Traconis. God, there's so many names in this case. Um, disposing of evidence uh-huh. in multiple places in dumpsters and storm drains. That that evidence was then located to find that it was in fact um, things that contained Jennifer Dulos's DNA, her clothing uh-huh. with yeah. blood, um, a towel, other things used to clean up blood. Uh-huh. And that's when Fotis was arrested. So since Fotis took his own life, uh-huh. this really left Michelle holding the bag. So she has been on trial for the last 27 days. And I want to share with you um, a little bit of the closing arguments, first from uh, the prosecution and then from the defense. And then we'll talk a little bit more about kind of where this is going. So one thing to note, and this is this case is in Connecticut. In Connecticut, the each um, the defense and the prosecution each get an hour for closing statements. The prosecution can split that hour into two. So they do a half an hour or they can split it up however they want. So they do some of it. Then the defense does their hour. Then the prosecution actually gets the last word. It's very interesting because every state does this differently because we just saw it done differently in other trials recently. So, um, Oh, in the, in the Harmony Montgomery trial, it was different. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hear first from, this is one of the prosecutors in, in this trial. And this is kind of her her opening, uh, just to kind of give us a little bit of what their theory of the crime is. I just want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for your time and attention over the past six weeks. I have an opportunity to speak to you now, and then the defense will go, and then Attorney McGinnis will speak with you one last time. Then our job is done, and yours begins. I'm going to start by talking about one thing that the evidence shows. Jennifer is dead. Let's be very clear. She was murdered on May 24th, 2019. There is blood spatter throughout the garage, throughout the undercarriage of two cars, footprints and swipes of blood. Her blood-soaked shirt and bra thrown out in the garbage on the streets of Albany Avenue, along with zip ties, sponges, and duct tape. Make no mistake, this was a deliberate, intentional murder. The evidence of Fotos Dulos taking his employee's car at 5.35 in the morning, driving down the parkway, secreting it at Waveney Park, and riding a bike to lay in wait for Jennifer. He did those acts because he planned to hurt, assault, to restrain her movements, and to kill her. Jennifer did not run away from her family, her friends, her five children, as the defense would like you to believe. She did not run away from her family, leaving her blood-soaked bra and shirt. She didn't hide in Waveney, head towards the train tracks. You heard the defense questions throughout the trial about that. Or try to make a call or get service with an old phone at Waveney Park in the afternoon on the 24th. The defense would have you believe she ran away from her kids, but she did not. Jennifer is dead, and Fotis and Michelle Traconis intended that to happen. They agreed to work together to make it happen, and unfortunately, they were successful. 
and making it happen. But they got caught. This trial is very simple. It's about a conspiracy and about a cover-up. It's about Michelle Traconis' actions and about how she and Fotostulos conspired together to murder the woman who was standing in their way. It's about the frustration of Fotostulos not seeing his kids for over a year and a half, about having, well, not seeing his kids and having a supervisor present for a year and a half. And every time those kids came around, Michelle Traconis had to leave her home. She had to take her daughter somewhere else. And we know she was sick of it. Frustration turned to anger and hatred. Listen to her own words in the interviews. How she describes Jennifer, someone she has never met. She describes her as manipulating, angry, toxic. And we all remember the comment to Pavel, that bitch should be buried next to the dog. You're muted. Damn it. Every time. So basically they're saying that she knew from the very beginning yep. there was a plan. She participated. She helped him set up the events before the fact and, and, you know, then assisted with the cleanup and the attempt to cover up the uh, evidence. Huh. That's, that's what the prosecution is saying is that she was on yep. board from day one. Now let's hear what the defense has to say. Okay. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is the one and only time except during voir dire that I get to speak to you during this trial. It's been a long trial and I will just echo what Ms. Manning said about your dedication and your attention to this case over what has been, at least in recent years, one of the longer trials that has taken place in the state of Connecticut. I am going to um, refer to notes while I'm talking. Usually I just try to talk and I have pointers, but because there are so many things that happened in this case, there's just been so much over the course of the last six, six and a half weeks, I may refer more to the notes than I normally would. And I apologize in advance if it looks like I'm reading from uh, a paper rather than just talking to you. What I want to start off by pointing out is that what really happened on May 24th, 2019, because whatever was going on that day, whatever Fotis Doulos' role was in the disappearance, and we'll, I'll say the likely death of, of Jennifer Doulos, Michelle Traconis did not know. She did not know that Fotis Doulos planned to harm her. Everything suggested that things were going well, and it was to the contrary. In fact, she didn't know that Fotis was capable of doing something like this. A man who was dedicated to his five children, had been in court for years trying to get custody back. The state has made what I would suggest are unfounded and unfair assumptions and had speculated that Michelle Traconis had to know what was going on, that she was, because she was romantically linked with Fotis, that she was somehow involved in this nefarious, murderous plot. But, but that's not reality. That's more like one of these cable TV movies, scripted movies. It's not based on the facts that you heard. 
during this trial. It is, and I will say this multiple times, speculation. It's conjecture. It's guesswork, which is not the standard of evidence in a criminal case here. We also concede that something bad did in fact happen at 69 Wells Lane in New Canaan that morning. It's clear, and we will also concede, that Fotis Dulos is ultimately responsible for what happened to Jennifer Dulos, whether he did it himself or he had a compatriot who was involved in it down there. Because we know someone else was down at 16, or at least down in New Canaan that day, and we know that wasn't Michelle Traconis. The state has not proven where Fotis Doulos was that morning. There are some suggestions. We see the vehicles driving. There is a tiny amount, I emphasize a tiny amount of DNA found on a faucet inside the home, which I'll talk about in a minute. But whether or not Fotis was in Farmington, whether it's in New Canaan or somewhere in between, it is conjecture as to where he actually was and what he personally did with his own hands. Now, we're looking at evidence that's been going on for five years, collection of evidence, and taking statements as recently as last month from Mr. Gumieni, new statements from Mr. Gumieni. But there's been forensics, there was surveillance cameras, there were multiple interviews, there were family court pleadings, there were the interrogations. You heard eight, nine hours of interrogations of Michelle Traconis. Even in hindsight, even now, major questions remain about what happened. And it's still unclear. It's still unclear what happened. And unfortunately, this trial will not solve that puzzle. It will remain a mystery, an unfinished puzzle. But again, this is not Fotis Doulos' trial. This is Michelle Traconis' trial. And because it's Michelle Traconis' trial, you must find beyond a reasonable doubt that Michelle conspired with Fotis Doulos, not just to cause harm to, to Jennifer Doulos, but to murder her that that was the plot, that was the intent of Michelle Traconis on or before May 24th, 2019. Then you have to find beyond a reasonable doubt various elements that Michelle was part of a plot to get rid of evidence, some microscopic, some in opaque garbage uh, bags, but that she knew what was in it, knew its purpose, and what she did was, in, was the same exact intent as whatever Fotis Doulos had planned. But again, part of what you have to prove here, and what the state has to prove, what you have to find, is that Fotis Doulos murdered his wife. The criminal information which you will have states specifically that Fotis Doulos assaulted his wife and restrained her and intended to kill her. Again, there's no evidence of that, it's speculation as to who actually did that, as to any of that, to be, for that matter. No matter how you view this evidence, even in hindsight, five years later, there is nothing to suggest that Michelle had any clue about what was gonna happen in New Canaan on May 24th, 2019. More importantly, there's nothing to suggest that Michelle 
would even think that Fotis was capable of doing anything like that. Okay, so the defense says all of this is speculation. And, and there is a great deal that is speculation because Fotis Duos killed himself before he was ever convicted of uh, Jennifer's murder. But True. in order for um, in order for Michelle to be guilty, the jury has to determine that Fotis did kill her. That is right. part that was part of the jury instructions, mm -hmm. which jury instructions in this case were some of the most detailed I have ever seen, even more detailed than Lori Vallow, which was uh -huh. very detailed. Yeah. But there that is a real conundrum, I think, yeah. that that this jury is gonna feel is they have to assume that Fotis killed her and that Jennifer conspired with him to do that. And he was never convicted of it, nor did he ever admit to it right. before he died. He he maintained his innocence even in his suicide note. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary that he most certainly right. was involved, and he did a lot of really sketchy things. He borrowed, so they talked about uh, Gavel, Pavel Gumeni. I can't, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He was an, he was an employee of Fotis, and Fotis borrowed his Toyota Tacoma and used it in this, uh, in this crime, is right. what is supposed. And Michelle helped clean the Toyota Tacoma after whatever Fotis supposedly did with Jennifer's body. Right. So it's all, it's very, very complicated. And it is a lot to give a jury mm -hmm. uh, where there is no body and there was no conviction of Fotis Dulos. This is the only person who will ever face responsibility uh paul pavel the the employee actually has immunity um because he did some things to help fotis after the fact as well he's the guy who was told he had to replace the seats in his truck uh -huh. and he did do that but then he kept the seats and he turned them over to the police and those seats had blood on that right um, so it's, it's really complicated. There are a lot of things that can happen and there are a bunch of different charges. And so the jury has a lot of options as far as what they do with this case. Right. But have they proven beyond a reasonable doubt, the conspiracy to commit murder? I don't know that they have. I, I don't either. I I'm, I'm concerned that they haven't. Will the jury make that leap? They could with what they've been given, but they do literally have to assume that Fotis Dulos killed Jennifer Dulos, and uh -huh. they do not have any evidence at all of the crime itself. They have the evidence of the cleanup after the fact. Uh -huh. But the crime itself, there are no witnesses. There was no one to testify about it. Fotis uh -huh. wasn't there to testify. It's a lot. But mm -hmm. the thing I have to keep coming back to with with uh, Michelle Traconis is if she was innocent, if she did not know that this was going to happen at all, mm -hmm. and then Fotis calls her and says, hey, I need you to come help me clean some, up some stuff and, you know, 
get some cleaning supplies together and, you know, do all of these sketchy things that they did to uh -huh. clean that truck. And then the police came and said, hey, Jennifer Dulos is missing. And they arrest Fotis for that crime. Uh -huh. Why at that point, if, Je if Michelle Traconis was innocent, why would she not have at that point have said, whoa, hold the phone? I think he might have involved me in some of this after the fact. I didn't know. I didn't do this. Here's everything I know about him. Right. That is not what she did. No. She helped to create an alibi for him. Uh -huh. They wrote together this ridiculous timeline of stuff that, I mean, they made up stuff they didn't even do that they didn't even have to make up. Like right. they had sex that morning and they uh -huh. didn't. And it's just a bunch of stupid stuff. Uh -huh. Um Michelle, you know, the, the defense attorney talked about, you know, eight or nine hours of, um, of uh, interrogation. It's because Michelle Traconis' story just kept changing. Right. And she didn't just come clean and say, look, I didn't know he was going to do this. He involved me after the fact. I'm going to tell you everything that happened, everything we did, show you where he put stuff. I don't want involved with this. I mean, she has a child herself. And had a child with her at the time that this stuff occurred. Mm -hmm. Why would she not have protected herself and her kid if she was, in fact, innocent? She acts like a guilty person has from the beginning. Yeah. In all of the That's changing of stories and stuff. She protected Fotis. Yeah. I, there's the rub, right? I mean, she yeah. didn't do what innocent people do. But I agree no. with you. I think this is, it's pretty circumstantial. I don't know. There's so much to assume about it that I don't know how the jury will feel about mm -hmm. can they say for sure that Fotis Dulos killed Jennifer Dulos? And the fact that there's no body, mm -hmm. even though she has legally been declared dead, there's a lot of questions here. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it pretty obvious that they have evidence about the evidence tampering and the evidence destruction and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's yeah. all there. And the, um, you know, hindering the investigation, 100%, because they yeah. caught her in many lies. So they could convict her of all of those things, I think, quite easily with what the prosecution did present. Mm -hmm. But can they convict her of conspiring to commit the murder? I really don't think they proved that. Yeah. You can infer it from her behavior, mm -hmm. most definitely. But is that enough? We're I see. think it's it's reasonable to wonder if they the jury can possibly agree on this. It, it really I is. I want to show you a couple of pictures. So this is Jennifer Dulos, mm -hmm. missing since May 24th of 2019, never found. Mm -hmm. Here is uh, Michelle Traconis. This is her in court. I don't know. This is a tough one. This is a really complicated case. I do not envy oh, this at all. No. And the um, the jury instructions were long and many, many pages long and a lot to help them understand, like, what it means to conspire uh -huh. versus to actually act in an overt act and do what they, uh -huh. you know, because she's she's charged with a lot of different things. But I, yeah. I think we're going to see come back with it, come back with a split conviction where some things are. Yeah guilty and some things are innocent i that's my suspicion i will I be surprised if true. they find her guilty in the conspiracy to commit murder i i will be surprised. agree 
And I would expect that this is going to take a hot minute for them to mm -hmm. come back. That it will. They have a lot to review and all of those different charges to compare all the evidence up against. They only deliberated for 30 minutes today and they asked for an easel. And they have a computer that has all of the exhibits on it, plus the exhibits themselves. Like they have all kinds of stuff, but I think it might take a few days. Yeah. On this one, because there's so much to go through. And yeah, I mean, did they prove beyond a reasonable doubt? that she conspired to kill Jennifer Dulos. I don't know yeah. if they're going to be able to prove that. So we'll keep you updated on Definitely. it. For sure. Yeah. And with that, Katie, I'm going to kick the mic over to you for the Nori Jones trial. Okay. Well, I want to introduce you guys to Nori Jones. So this is Nori. I'm going to share a few things from her obituary. Uh, Nori was born on January 13th, 1979 in Rexburg, Idaho, where I live. Yeah. And was raised in the Territon Montevue area and attended mm -hmm. West, West Jefferson High School and graduated from West Jefferson High School. That's very near here. Mm -hmm. uh, she attended Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho and worked at Brolem's. These are all places that we also attended college. And yeah. Uh-huh. And she graduated with an associate degree in 1999. Okay. The, she then moved to Pocatello, where she worked uh, at JCPenney, Convergis, and oh. where you worked. <laughs> and we have a lot of no, similarities. Just oh, Kara did. We have a lot of similarities with, uh, with Nori Jones. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, these are things I didn't sure know do. about her. Uh, and then the Idaho Commerce and Labor Department. And that's where she worked at the time of her death. Yes. She died on September 28th, 2004. On September 29th, she did not show up to work, which was very much not like Nori. Mm -hmm. And her supervisor and coworker were worried about her and they went to her house. And it was locked and it looked like there was blood uh, next to the front door, like a baseball sized splotch of what could have maybe been blood. So they uh, made contact with her landlord who unlocked the door and they walked inside and Nori was laying on her bed, on her stomach and uh, was naked and clearly deceased. And there was an enormous amount of blood in the house, uh, in the bedroom, in the bed and stuff. It was a really, really terrifying, uh, terrible thing to see. And of course the, uh, the police were called, the EMTs showed up first. They walked in the house and pretty much turned around and walked right back out because it was a crime scene and she was clearly deceased. So then of course the crime scene was flooded with police to come and figure out what happened. And of course, they did all of the forensics they could do in 2004, including a rape kit and uh, looking for bodily fluids, fingerprints, the kind of thing that was done in 2004. Mm -hmm. There had been a man who had uh, harassed her at work quite a bit. Her job was to help people to get jobs. Uh, and particularly, she worked a lot with people who had, were convicts and felons. Mm -hmm. And because she was adorable, she had attracted the attention of uh, various creepy guys 
And what one guy particularly that creeped her out so much at work that she bought a ring and started wearing an engagement ring. Yeah. And uh, it made me think about how often young women have to do that. You and I both had to do that mm-hmm. when we were around her age for, for similar reasons. Uh, Stupidly, yes. It was like, well, if you belonged to a different man, then people would stop mm-hmm. bothering you. Yeah. And I would imagine that a lot of you listening also had to do something of that sort. Apparently, she'd bought a cheap ring first. And then as a gift to herself, had upgraded to a much more expensive ring that her Mm -hmm. friends and family said she absolutely never, ever took off. It was always on her finger. Uh, The night that she was murdered, she had actually been at her boyfriend's house watching Monday Night Football, but wasn't feeling awesome. So after the game, she decided to go home. So she did stay at his house frequently, but that night she did not. So she had gone home and to sleep in her own bed and... That's kind of what they knew. They, uh, the boyfriend was extensively questioned. He was, uh, of course, checked out first. Uh, he was on the stand and had said that he uh, had, you know, given fingerprints, DNA, uh, had had to have a full body examination looking for defensive wounds and had been cleared after an extensive investigation on him. Uh, so the trial started about five days ago, and so that's what I'm kind of leaning back on. Are some I've been reading. East Idaho News has a reporter in the courtroom. I want to tell you his name because he is doing an excellent job. And we yeah. know how hard it is to do what he's doing right now to live tweet mm-hmm. trials. is incredibly difficult. Uh, his name is Kalama Hines. So big, yeah. big props to you, uh, Kalama. Absolutely. We have been there. We have mm-hmm. had the sore thumbs to prove it. Mm-hmm. This is very hard work. Uh, so he's been in the courtroom. So uh, so the cl- the case went cold for a good amount of time, though. They were, they did, they've always been working on it. This was a horrible crime in Pocatello that shocked the hell out of people. And yeah. of course they've been working on it. But uh, they had come up with nothing until DNA testing started to get better. And... By 2014, they had narrowed down on a suspect, a man named Brad Comfer. And so they did what we've seen happen lots of other times before. They put some detectives on Brad. They were tailing him and they watched him flick a cigarette. And so they gathered that and they sent it back to the lab and it came back uh, as a match to some DNA that was found on the ring. And it's kind of interesting because when they found her, she was in rigor. Her one hand was clasped shut, her left hand, but the ring finger was stuck out like this, like it had been pried open. She didn't have the ring on. But as they were moving her body out of the house, uh, one of the detectives heard uh, something hit the floor and it was the ring. It was there. It just, she wasn't wearing it. Uh, Mm There was also no evidence at the crime scene that there'd been a burglary uh, other than that ring being pulled off of her finger, but then being left there on the, on site. That ring apparently had Brad Comfer's uh, fingerprints on it, or sorry, not fingerprints, DNA. There was uh, a fingerprint also on the outside of the door of her house that they believe belongs to Brad Comfer. So, they arrested Brad Comfer in 
14 and they had charged him. And if you are looking at the calendar thinking, gosh, that was 10 years ago, you'd be correct. Yeah. Brad Comfer has been in jail for 10 years awaiting trial. Mm-hmm. 10 years. Now, part of that is because Brad Comfer is very low IQ and incredibly mentally ill and has spent a good part of this time actually in and out of bouncing back and forth between jail and mental health facilities, trying to get him competent. Um, Even when he was deemed competent by the state, the defense had argued heavily that he was not based on uh, on their expert. And I think it's concerning because the state's expert met with him one time for, I believe the article said 30 minutes. And the defense's expert had met with him six times and had a very different picture of his competency than the state did. Uh, But the judge decided to proceed. So here we are. Um, But that was back in 2019, I believe. I mean, this has taken an unreasonable, unfathomable amount of time to get to this point. In 2015, there was an episode on cold justice about this case. And it was called Still of the Night on January 9th, 2015, if you want to go look for it. Uh, the pros- or the defense tried to block this from being able to be aired. They claimed that this would negatively influence a jury. And they thought it was really unfair for a documentary about a murder to be aired that uh, hadn't been tried yet. And they were unsuccessful in that bid. And that did air. Interesting, because we see this happen more and more now, where the documentaries come out before the trial even ends or even begins. You know, we've seen it with Lori Vallow. Mm -hmm. I'm with them. I don't think it should happen. I don't either. I think in the interest of justice, it should not happen. Yeah. Right. Right. So... Initially, the death penalty was on the table, but his attorneys managed to successfully argue to remove the death penalty from the table because of constitutional law surrounding his IQ. Yeah. That he is not a candidate for the death penalty due to his mental health and uh, learning disabilities. Yeah. So here we are now. The trial has begun. Uh, five, day five just wrapped up today. And the prosecution, it sounds like, has one more witness to finish up with, and they're going to rest. The defense is claiming that they are calling two men out of prison. Two men that murdered another woman in Pocatello named Cassie Jo Stoddard. Yeah. And so that's pretty interesting. Their names are Adam, Adam Sick and Draper. They were both convicted in 2006 for murdering Cassie Jo Stoddard. Uh, she was a classmate made of theirs in Pocatello. But uh, just so curious, what, why are they testifying? What are they testifying to? I, I don't, don't know. know well, I have read the prosecution's whole case so far, and I don't know. I don't know. There's no evidence that she was uh, sexually assaulted. There's no semen anywhere on her body. 
there, of course, is the DNA from the ring. I had read initially that there was DNA on her body as well, but I haven't heard that in the trial at all. But I'm not listening. I'm just reading someone else's notes. So take that with a grain of salt. And then, of course, the handprint. One of the questions is that uh, the person who murdered her sliced her window. She had an open window that they sliced the screen open on and climbed through. Mm-hmm. And the defense claims that there's no possible way that uh, that Brad Comfort could have climbed through that window because he was much bigger than that. Now, Brad, mm-hmm. through his time uh, being in jail for the last 10 years, has actually lost a significant amount of weight. This is Brad mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the prosecution brought forward as evidence are some scars on Brad Comfort's arms that they claim are from defensive wounds. And the defense was they like, don't have proof of that. I mean, that's, this was 20 years no. ago. The defense fought really hard on that because they're like, how could you possibly? And these were scars that he had in 2014. So 10 years after the fact, but still they were like, you can't possibly claim these are defensive wounds. Right. Like there's what is where's but, the evidence of that? Right. The state had an expert that was trying to, you know, argue that they were defensive wounds, but that seemed very dicey to me. Um, You guys might recall in the Vallow, Daybell Vallow trial, or Daybell, sorry, the Vallow trial, uh, how technical it gets when you're talking about fingerprints and a chain of custody and, you know, all that stuff gets to be a little boring and technical and we've been going through a lot of that today in this trial but essentially mm-hmm. one of the interesting things is that one of the uh the initial tech who was on site who gathered fingerprints is deceased now but he oh, wow. was alive during the preliminary because the preliminary was a long time ago and so they had someone act out his part and then like read his testimony yeah and then the it, yeah it was like some as the reporter called it amateur theater the prosecutor read their mm-hmm. lines and he read uh the text lines and then the defense read their lines and yeah wild uh, wow. but, but the defense has some real questions about whether the crime scene was properly uh secured and sanitary and because apparently mm. uh multiple people walked through blood and tracked it through the house that were on the crime scene and some things like that. But of course that's the defense. It's their job to poke holes in, you know, basically everything, but Mm -hmm. basically that's the evidence. Um, They have not produced any kind of motive that I can tell. They haven't seemed to have produced, which is interesting because in their opening statements, they said, you need to listen for the why. I, I am flummoxed. I don't know what the why is. I'm very confused about what the why would have been. Yeah, because Nori had talked about um, being harassed and being stalked and stuff, but she never identified Brad Comfort as being the person who done that, nor did anyone else, right? Nor did anybody else. No, they had other people. There is a man that was a person of interest and and continued to be a person of interest clear until this arrest, but his fingerprints didn't match anything. So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm interested to see how this plays forward. It's definitely uh, a case that has very, very little evidence to go on. Um, They haven't brought anyone forward that saw Comfer 
anywhere near the house. I haven't heard anything like that. And again, I'm just reading somebody else's notes. And so if there it was something like that said, I didn't see it. Uh, but, you know, if someone was in the courtroom, they may have heard more. I think it's pretty mm. dicey, to be honest. It sounds like it. And I'm really curious about what Cassie Jo Stoddard's murderers have to do mm-hmm. with this case. Why are they bringing them from prison to testify? To testify yeah. to what? Right. What do they know? Interesting. We don't know. There have been a couple moments where the prosecution tried to bring in uh, testimony or bring in evidence that was discovery that the defense never received. And, really? and oh, the judge wow. allowed it. So that will open some doors for Ooh. appeal because yeah, well. uh, that's, that's kind of very concerning actually, but uh that's kind of where it's at. So tomorrow the prosecution will, uh, we believe, rest. That's the that's the uh, the scuttlebutt. But it sounds like the defense is putting on a defense, and so we should see some witnesses from the defense. This trial was expected to last about two weeks, and we're only on we're on day five, beyond uh, jury selection, of course. So mm-hmm. you know, well, there, there's miles to go here. But I'm really interested to see what the defense brings because yeah. I just. I I didn't see much from the uh, well, and I mean the DNA on the ring. You can't prove when that got there, and right. the handprint, the the fingerprint is on the outside of the door. Mm-hmm. So there's no evidence of him in the house other than the ring, which could have happened not in the house. Right, not that I could tell. Yeah, not that I could tell. I don't. They didn't say no. anything about evidence inside the house but again i i'm reading secondhand notes so i i don't want to say that definitively but that's what i'm reading yeah so uh it has been there was a long viewing of autopsy photos that was pretty horrifying apparently as it would mm. be obviously right. um cassie's mom had said you know that she was a tough farm girl which she would have been growing up out in uh, west Shea, and that she oh, yeah. absolutely would have fought back and so mm-hmm. they had anticipated that perhaps she did though all the fingernail clippings didn't really indicate that she did there wasn't a bunch of dna that wasn't hers under her fingernails Hmm. which is something they always watch for i mean they clip her fingernails they clipped her fingernails at the crime scene and took those directly into custody so so far my understanding is the ring and the fingerprint uh are what has uh, led them back to brad comfer So, yikes. We'll okay. Keep a very close eye on this case and uh, we'll continue to uh, keep an eye on the uh, the evidence being presented and let you guys know how it proceeds. So, yeah. I'm not saying Brad wow. Comper is or isn't innocent. I don't know. Just judging by the innocent of the evidence that they brought by so far, it's uh it's that's pretty sparse to me. It sure sounds like it. I I think both of these cases we're covering there's questions. Yeah. Real yeah. questions. I, I, I'm just not convinced that that they're going to come back and convict Michelle Traconis of, of the conspiracy yeah. to commit a murder that they haven't actually been able to approve. To approve well, happened. Yeah. I just don't know. I, that's hard. That's well, and in Ori reach. Jones, people have wanted a pound of their pound of flesh out of this case for a long time. Of course right. they have. You know? I mean, this yeah. shook this community to its core, and it's been 20 years. They want a conviction. They do. I just have serious questions about uh, the competency of Brad Comfer. Yeah. Brad Comfer interestingly changed his name in 2008. Um, 
it's always been Comfer, but he had he's changed his name to a new first and middle name in 2008. So Brad Comfer is the mm -hmm. name he goes by now. Yeah. But at any rate, so that's where things stand. So we will keep you posted and wow. see how things play out. And we'll be back uh, Wednesday night for case updates at 7 p.m. Mountain. That is our live stream. So mm -hmm. come join us. We have a lot of fun and interesting stuff go on in that uh, show a lot of interaction with the chat so we'd love to see you in the chat we will have two new patreons coming out tomorrow so uh, mm -hmm. watch for that as well if you're a patron and then we'll have a new episode on thursday so we're just mm -hmm. coming we've got a bunch going on here so we'll and of course we'll have a close eye on the uh, uh the traconis jury to see when yes they come back. we will we'll also probably by then know if Thomas Creech will be um, executed tomorrow night or not. Tomorrow morning. is That is at 10 a.m. now. That's the schedule. Oh, is it? Oh, it's now at 10 a.m.? See, I, I was unable to find a time, so I'm glad now there's a time. But it was initially in the evening. So, yeah, we'll be able to tell you. Yep. If Idaho got their pound of flesh out of Thomas Creech. I, I, I think know. it's pretty definitive that they will. Yeah. there's there. I don't think that there's anything else to happen now. Yeah. I think that's... That is happening. Yep. All righties. Well, thanks so much for being here. Take good care of yourselves, please. This has been yet another production of the True Crime Squad. Bye, everybody.